Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 46 for July 26, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Earlier this month, U.S. Army Lieutenant General Michael Nagata came to the Washington Institute to take stock of the nation's counterterrorism efforts since 9-11 and to share his strategic advice for the future of our fight against terrorism. After nearly two decades, and despite all that we should rightly be proud of, I believe the time has come to ask ourselves some difficult but necessary questions. Despite the capabilities we have developed and the progress we have achieved, why is terrorism today more widespread and complex than when we began? Why has terrorism proven to be so resilient and adaptive despite our successes and the continuing pressure and might that we and the world bring to bear against it? General Nagata serves as Director of Strategic Operational Planning at the National Counterterrorism Center. Previously, he commanded U.S. Special Operations Forces in the first two years of combat operations against the Islamic State. We'll hear his provocative analysis of the long war against terrorism and his recommendations for improving American policy. After this. This is Sarah Foyer, SORA Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. General Nagata addressed the Institute as part of our long-running counterterrorism lecture series on July 10, 2018. The following are his prepared remarks. I've been in my position as, a, as the senior strategist for counterterrorism at the National Counterterrorism Center for about two years. What I'm about to uh, try to convey to you is a melding both of my own uh, practical operational experience, uh, some of which has been successful, some of which has not, but uh, you know, whether you call it experience or scar tissue, I have a lot of both, um, but also what I've been forced to learn uh, in the last two years in considering how the United States government in its totality, not just the United States military, addresses the problem of terrorism uh, around the world. So what I intend to do today is to discuss those counterterrorism efforts, give you my perspective, particularly with an eye toward how our nation strives strategically to protect U.S. citizens and our interests around the globe from the threat of terrorism. After I make these few brief remarks, uh, I'll get to the more important part, which is a conversation with all of you and with Matt. My goals today are to make a few remarks about what I consider to be the state of U.S. CT efforts, and in so doing, provide my perspective on what the future of contesting terrorism will require. For nearly 17 years, the United States, in conjunction with a large number of its allies and partners around the world, has exerted extraordinary effort and invested enormous treasure into contesting terrorism in its many forms. As all of you know, our principal focus has been on the kind of international threat that organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS pose. During this time, the United States has sent some of its best and brightest to the farthest reaches of the globe to combat terrorist organizations and franchises in their sanctuaries. Along the way, we have developed an almost dizzying array of intelligence capabilities, tactical and operational innovations, and technological breakthroughs year after year. As a result, all of us can and should be very proud of all that has been accomplished, 
not the least of which being the prevention of another catastrophic terrorist attack on U.S. soil, such as our nation experienced on 9-11. We rightly grieve those we have lost along the way and still strive to take care of those who have been gravely injured and wounded in this longest of all America's wars. Yet after nearly two decades, and despite all that we should rightly be proud of, I believe the time has come to ask ourselves some difficult but necessary questions. Despite the capabilities we have developed and the progress we have achieved, why is terrorism today more widespread and complex than when we began? Why has terrorism proven to be so resilient and adaptive despite our successes and the continuing, continuing pressure and might that we and the world bring to bear against it? As just one example of why the underlying trends of terrorism, despite our best efforts, are so troubling is a sobering statistic that one can derive from the Global Terrorism Database that is compiled and maintained by the University of Maryland's START program. Since 2010, terrorism-related fatalities worldwide have increased more than 300%. Terrorist attacks with associated fatalities have increased by nearly 200%. Separately, here at home, federal law enforcement has about 1,000 terrorism-related investigations open in our own communities across all 50 states. I am not trying to suggest that our efforts have been fruitless. The plain fact that there has been no repetition of a 9-11 style attack on our own soil is a signal and important accomplishment. The fact that we have revolutionized, and I don't use that term lightly, our own abilities and practices when it comes to illuminating and attacking terrorist leaders and plots is likewise a big deal. That said, I would like to share with you some observations that my, from my perspective, both as an operational practitioner for several decades and today as a DC-based strategist, strike me as germane toward answering these questions. First, where have we been since 9-11? Well, the lion's share of our investments since that day have gone into developing new CT capability and capacity that are primarily oriented on identifying, illuminating, targeting, tracking, and as we say in the CT world, finishing terrorists and terrorist plots. Our principal focus, both tactically and strategically, has been toward developing our ability to eliminate terrorist leaders, their foot soldiers, while simultaneously identifying and disrupting their most dangerous attack plans. This has driven extraordinary investments in new intelligence community capabilities, a revolution in military affairs when it comes to combating irregular and insurgent forces, and the creation of entirely new federal agencies focused on hardening our infrastructure, defending our borders, and investigating and disrupting violent, violent extremist threats both inside our country and abroad. Second, where are we now? On the one hand, as I've already described, we have developed enormous proficiency and expertise in CT that continues to serve us well today. Most recently, when the Islamic State exploded onto the world stage in 2014, the United States was far more ready and able to grapple with and begin the military defeat of that entity that would have been possible 17 years ago. On the other hand, the fact that ISIS suddenly emerged as a strategic surprise for the United States 
only four years ago should be a sobering realization for all of us. It has compelled a large number of experts within our CT community to recognize that for all the successes we have had, violent extremism in virtually every form continues to be very resilient. I'd like to provide three examples to emphasize this point about the size, capability, and resilience of terrorism today. First is a personal experience. More than a decade ago, I once commanded a foreign fighter task force that focused on foreign fighters that were joining al-Qaeda in Iraq. I vividly remember that we were struggling to deal with fighters that totaled in the hundreds. Since the rise of ISIS in 2014, our best estimates are that in excess of 40,000 foreign terrorist fighters have flocked to its black flag in that time. Second, ISIS, unfortunately, has been a strategic pioneer in at least two arenas. First, it is weaponizing and effectively employing commercially available and affordable unmanned aerial systems. As much more capable technologies, such as unmanned aerial systems, become more readily, readily available to anyone with a credit card, a terrorist's ability to create highly lethal effects is no longer dependent on centralized planning, centralized training, or centralized preparation. Second, and in some ways even more dangerously, is this group's innovative use of online propaganda, including social media platforms, to recruit, radicalize, and mobilize individuals to violence. No longer is the creation of new terrorists primarily dependent on physical or face-to-face -face contact between a prospective recruit and a terrorist recruiter, nor do new, new recruits require extensive training or guidance given the Islamic State's emphasis on encouraging its followers to conduct attacks in their home countries using simple tactics and easily accessible weapons. Consider that the truck driver in Nice, France in 2016 was able to kill and maim as many people with his truck as a large IED tack would have. And third, as many of you will recall, we had a notion right after 9-11 that, quote, we will play such an awesome away game that there will never be a home game. Nearly 20 years ago, I had to confront the sad reality that, I'm sorry, nearly 20 years later, I've had to confront the sad reality that despite the impressive nature and the enormous effectiveness of our away game efforts, and we should be proud of them, the overall movement of terrorism and violent, violent extremism has proven durable and resilient to our attacks. Today we are contesting an unprecedented scale of violent extremist activities, not just internationally, but against a wider array of domestic and homegrown violent extremisms on our own extremists on our own soil. Assuming the foregoing is reasonably accurate, we are faced with a question of how to make ourselves and our allies more effective in reducing the size, the capability, and the resilience of terrorism, not just how to identify and attack it. We must find a way to preserve today's impressive ability to disrupt terrorism while significantly strengthening our ability to reduce terrorism in all its forms, both internationally where it threatens U.S. interests or U.S. citizens, and more effectively within our own borders. 
While we maintain our already formidable ability to attack and disrupt terrorist activities, it is now necessary for the United States to shift more of its investments in people and capability towards what I will imperfectly call non-kinetic prevention of terrorism. It may seem a little unusual for a military special operator like myself to make such an argument, but like many of my military colleagues, I've been forced to confront the simple reality that attacking terrorists does not in and of itself create lasting strategic success against terrorism. It is necessary, but it is not sufficient. I'm not suggesting that we reduce our investments in what we have so successfully done in the past 17 years, illuminating and effectively attacking terrorists, nor am I suggesting we necessarily need an equivalent investment in what we have committed to kinetic CT on non-kinetic capabilities. The organizations, both governmental and non-governmental, that currently strive to prevent terrorism or terrorist activities have neither the absorptive capacity nor, in some cases, the proven methodologies today that could justify such a massive investment approach. Furthermore, the federal government has learned that it must be very thoughtful and very careful in how it supports or even resources or funds prevention programs and activities, especially with, with respect to our imperative to ensure civil and constitutional rights, personal privacy, political freedoms, and free enterprise are protected. What I am suggesting is simply this. We need a much more vibrant dialogue and effort, both within our government and across our society, about the degree to which we are willing or able to increase our investments in terms of fiscal resources, manpower, and genuine policy support for at least five related mission areas. First, becoming more effective in assisting local communities and families in identifying those vulnerable to terrorist recruitment and enabling local actors to either prevent or off-ramp these individuals or groups by teaching them how to address their needs or grievances without resorting to violence. Second, becoming more effective in contesting terrorist ideologies. Becoming more effective in contesting terrorist use of the Internet, both as a global command and control system and as an increasingly powerful radicalization instrument. Fourth, becoming more effective at preventing terrorist travel, both internationally and domestically. And fifth, becoming more effective in denying terrorists the resources they need to operate and to propagate their ideology. It is important that I acknowledge that thousands of extraordinary and dedicated people, both within government and across civil society, both at home and abroad, are striving to succeed in all five of these arenas today. They deserve the credit that is due them. Unfortunately, there are simply not enough of them. They universally suffer from significant resource shortfalls, and most importantly, they would benefit from the kind of constant and durable policy support that kinetic CT approaches enjoy today. Over the past 17 years, identifying terrorists and their plots has experienced vivid and substantial support. Not everything we attempted to do in locating or attacking them was successful, but we learned from every mistake. We were willing to absorb these setbacks, publicly defend them against both domestic and international criticism, and persevere because it was so important that we learn how to succeed. 
If we are to become strategically successful in the five non-kinetic arenas I've outlined, I believe it will take the same kind of sustained commitment. We do not yet know all of the prescriptions, approaches, skills, capabilities, or organizational models best suited to strategically succeed non-kinetically. And it will only be through the kind of ruthless experimentation that we were once willing to endure in our kinetic journey that we will learn how to be equally successful in preventing terrorism. This will ultimately determine if we learn to prevent the creation of new terrorists as well as we are able to kill or capture them today. I'm going to stop there. I would be delighted to answer any questions you may have or deal with any challenges you may wish to make to any of my assertions today. Thank you for listening to me. I appreciate your patience. And we'll move to Q&A. Thank you. After delivering those prepared remarks, General Nagata participated in a Q&A session moderated by Matthew Levitt, the Institute's Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Jeanette and Eli Reinhardt Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Matt's voice is the first one you'll hear. General, thank you so much. That was really a, a tour de force. There are several things that come to mind, but I'm going to ask you just one for starters so we can, we can get going. I, by my count, four of the five mission areas, the non-kinetic mission areas that you just laid out, in one way or another, touch on what we once called um, counter-radicalization, then we called countering violent extremism, now some are calling terrorism prevention, some in government are still calling it countering violent extremism, and it's the one area in what I would describe not as tactical counterterrorism, but strategic or non-kinetic counterterrorism, that there is still a tremendous amount of debate about, especially in this administration. Uh, when I look at what we do on CVE as a country abroad, I see us doing lots of great things. Uh, and indeed, the uh, State Department office that deals with these issues is called CT and CVE. Right. But when I look at what we are or aren't doing on CVE at home, and you mentioned the homegrown violent extremist threat, there's a lot less happening at home. If, if you had your druthers, how would you better shape our CVE efforts here in the homeland? There, there is so much there I could try to address, but I'll try to be brief about this. The, the thing that I'm most concerned about, not just inside our own country, but pretty much everywhere around the world, is how um, is what I consider to be a strategic deficit in various forms of support for the people the leaders and the populations that are most likely to be successful in preventing someone from taking the path to terrorism. Um, and those generally are not governmental actors. This is particularly true in our own country because we have this imperative, as I mentioned in my prepared remarks, to respect privacy, uh, to preserve uh, the, the freedoms Americans enjoy, um, and, and said a little, perhaps a little more practically, just avoid the, the dangers of this being seen as an intrusive, unwelcome invasion by the federal government in places where many of our citizens don't believe we belong. There's an element of do no harm. Right. Um, but the deficit I'm going to talk about is pervasive. In my judgment, it is pervasive. It is true abroad. It is true at home. The, the dearth of effective training and effective education and sufficient 
support for mostly civil society actors, family members, religious leaders, uh, uh, community activists, community uh, community leaders of various types, so that they know how to identify those who are potentially vulnerable or may have already undertaken the initial steps in, the, in what ultimately leads to the mobilization to violence and prevent it. Everywhere I go, both internationally and inside the United States, the most frequent lament I get from community leaders, from civil society actors, all the people I've already described, is the lament of where can I go, who can I turn to, who can teach me, who can train my people, train, train people in my community. They can be educators, they can be law enforcement people, they can be religious leaders, but how do we know what we're looking for? And once we know we've found it, what are the most effective approaches to dealing with it so we avoid mobilization of violence? It's particularly tricky inside the United States, um, as all Americans should know. Uh, holding a radical idea, holding an extreme idea, is not a crime. It is constitutionally protected, necessarily so. The tricky part is how to help local actors identify those who are beginning to take that path, avoid violating their rights, avoid creating the impression this is all just a government program to spy on Americans, and yet be effective in preventing that final step of mobilization of violence. It's a very, very tricky thing. When I consider some of the complex kinetic operations I've been involved in for the last 17 years, I think some of them have been very complicated, very tricky, but I think what I just described is more complex. Okay. Right up front here, if you could wait for the microphone and identify yourself, and I'm seeing other people. We'll get to you. We have plenty of time. Yeah, yeah uh, Michael Gordon, Wall Street Journal. Um, General, um, the fight against ISIS that you've been involved with um, still continues, uh, particularly in eastern Syria. Uh, what would be the implications of removing the 2,200 U.S. troops from Syria at this point in time? What needs to be done to consolidate the gains there in terms of stabilization, and is the international community doing enough? Mike, it's good to see you. Um, I'll, I'm going to try to take this in three bites. I'm going to make a note to myself so I don't forget. Um, and the last part was consolidate the gains, if I remember right. Okay, let me, so let me, let me take this in three pieces. Um, the fight against the Islamic State, as you know very well, I'm not trying to school you, um, but the fight against the Islamic State, from my point of view, is not confined to eastern Syria. It's not even it's not even confined to Syria. Um, now, we do have to finish off, and we're well on the way to finishing off the remnants of the declared geographic caliphate. It's basically, as you, as you know very well, shrunk down to a relatively small part of the Euphrates River Valley. The problem, though, and, and, and someone like you who travels in the region, you know this as well as I do, is that there are still plenty of ISIS fighters elsewhere in Iraq and Syria. Um, 
Now, they have adopted primarily insurgent tactics, but they're still terrorists. Um, so even when we finish the fight in the Euphrates River Valley, ISIS will still be in relatively large numbers still existent in both Iraq and Syria, including something we should all be worried about, a very large number of foreign fighters. The good news is the coalition has finished off a lot of those people, but there's still a lot of them left. They've gone to ground in a lot of places, but they, they remain a threat to the people of Syria, to the people of Iraq, and they will be, still be a threat to those people long after we have finished off our military operations in the Euphrates River Valley. Um, so the fight's not over. It's not even over in Iraq and Syria, even once we've finished off, uh, like I said, the last, the last remnant of the original geographic caliphate. Um, so it begs the question, which leads, I think, to the two other things you've asked me here, what do we do about re what remains? My view is that the role of the United States is irreplaceable in dealing with what remains. Now, there are many different formulas that one can come up with about what the nature or the composition or the size of that American involvement is. Some of those debates are, are going on today. I don't know what the outcome of those, do of those debates will be, but, um, but my view, and I express this view in the circles in, uh, that, that I live in today, that the, the role of the United States in maintaining focus on the remnants of ISIS in Iraq and Syria is irreplaceable. Um, if we don't, if we're not the galvanizing actor, I, I, I think it is very unlikely that someone else will fill our place. And I think experience shows that if, if the pressure on the Islamic State remnants that are in Iraq and Syria is lifted, I think all you have to do is refer back to what happened in the journey from AQI to ISIS to realize that what the remnants of ISIS will all become stronger. Um, what can be done to consolidate the gains? This is not original thought with me. Uh, you ask anyone in our development agencies, anyone, any of the civil society actors in countries like Jordan or Iraq or what have you, you you'll get the answer I'm about to give you. Uh, if, if, if the governments in that region are unable or unwilling to redress the original grievances that allowed the morphing of the remnants of AQI into what became the Islamic State, um, there will be no consolidation of our gains. In other words, we cannot consolidate the gains there. The people in the region have to consolidate the gains. Now, some of them are trying. We have, it is in our interest, in my view, to assist them, to support them, wherever and whenever we are, we are willing or incapable of doing so. But consolidation of the gains cannot be done by the United States. The consolidation of the gains have to be done by people that live there. Uh, Tim Andrews over here on my right. MZ right next to you. There you go. Tim Andrews. I'm a contractor at the State Department. Um, you spoke to resources for non-kinetic activities. I was wondering if we could drill this down a little bit um, and look at the non-coercive non-kinetic activities, in other words, other than law enforcement, and ask you sure. the question of whether we have our risk for that kind of activity calibrated properly 
we've been willing to take a fair bit of risk on the kinetic side, but in my observation over roughly 10 years in this arena, we're not very willing to take risk on, on the non-coercive, right. non-kinetic side, and what can we do about it? Um, the short answer is, it, I think it requires us to make, it requires us to make different decisions. Uh, the longer answer is this. Uh, in my opinion, uh, as well as my experience, um, if you want to see a very vivid example of a term I used in my prepared remarks, policy support, watch what international leaders of all stripes do in the wake of combat casualties among their own forces. As a general rule, what you hear a policymaker say is, this is very tragic. It's very unfortunate. We mourn our dead. We're going to take care of the family. But the best way to honor our fallen is to persevere. We have to keep going. This is so important. We have to keep going. We have to be willing to endure and absorb these blows and these setbacks. That's, that's a common experience in the military. In these non-kinetic arenas or non-coercive non-kinetic arenas as you styled them, um, Often that does not happen. When there's a setback, when there's a perception of failure, uh, very often, uh, I, this is not just true of the United States government, this is true of governments around the world. The international community tends to flinch from failure in these non-kinetic arenas. What that tells me is we're less willing to accept risks in these arenas than we are in direct combat with the enemy. That, that's a decision, that's a choice. Whether we're aware we're making it or not, that is a choice. So I, so I come back to my original answer. It will require us to make different decisions. Now, I'll, I'll close by being a little more specific here. The, this, this policy support can take many forms. The one I've just described, I would argue, is the most important. But there are other examples as well. In, in my role as the director of strategy at, at NCTC, we periodically do assessments of how our fiscal resources and the capabilities that they fund are being used. I doubt it will surprise you to know that a very small fraction of our counterterrorism expenditures go to things like counter-messaging, terrorism prevention, uh, et cetera. It's, it, it's, it's a very, very small investment that we make. Now, as I said in my prepared remarks, I am not suggesting that the hundreds of billions of dollars we pour into military campaigns needs to be translated into these arenas. That they can't absorb it. And as I suggested earlier, there, we still have a lot to learn in these arenas. There are things we could fund that could completely blow up on our face. So we need to be careful here. But they do need people and they do need money. That is also a form of policy support. More people and more money recognizing that some of this won't work. Recognizing that if we're willing to accept fatalities and keep going, we should also be willing to see an effort to counter an ideology or to prevent the recruitment of an individual or a group that may fail, may fail very badly. The United States government or our partners could get accused of every sin under the calendar, of everything from being foolish to being perverse. But if we're not willing to accept that, then it begs the question, how, seriously, how serious are we in this arena? Because we don't know everything that can succeed in these arenas. This is a, in a direct contrast with our kinetics experience. We have years now of knowing what doesn't work 
in tracking down and capturing or killing a terrorist. We have two decades of experience. Um, there are probably some people in this room who can hearken back to some of the ways we tried to hunt terrorists right after 9-11. We don't do those things anymore because we learned they didn't work. We have not undertaken a similar journey in non-kinetic counterterrorism. Uh, on the topic of terrorism prevention, I'm frequently challenged when I make remarks like I made today. Well, you know, General Nagata, prove to me it works. My answer to that is we've not yet tried hard enough to know what works in some ways. I'm, I'm a little reminded of, uh, I'm going to mangle this historical episode, but it, the, 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 the basic version of it is Thomas Edison once replied after he was being showered with international praise for inventing the light bulb, he said something like, well, I didn't actually invent the light bulb. I invented a thousand ways not to have a light bulb. <laughs> but had I not had all those failures, there would never have been a light bulb. That, that we have to under, be willing to undertake that journey when it comes to CT. Front, Mahreen. Thank you. Mahreen Farouk from Counterparty International. Um, my question is, many countries from Egypt to Bangladesh, um, you know, are often accused of abusing their counterterrorism provisions as part of their efforts to crack down on dissent, right. um, which really is only increasing political grievances and frustrations and fueling radicalization. So how can we hold our partners to really focus on the real threats um, that matter? The only reason I'm hesitating is I doubt anything I'm about to say is anything you haven't heard before. I'm just impressed you're going to say anything more than with difficulty. Yeah, it, well, it's complicated. Um, I, I need to do better than that, and I'll try. There is, a, there is a tendency. This is not just true of the United States. It's, it's true of a lot of governments around the world that are confronted with a, with a very dangerous physical threat from terrorism um, because it is an emergency in many cases that you don't accept risk in confronting the physical threat, which means you do accept risk in other places, including the possibility uh, that some of our partners or allies around the world may take license with the support we give them in ways that we do not want them to. I, in my view, we have to confront the question, is everything an emergency? Is the tyranny of the now so important that we have to accept the risks involved in some of our partners going on excursions into activities or behaviors that we believe actually make the problem worse? But our tendency has been to treat everything as an emergency. And I want, I'm going to take a little poetic license here because I'm I've been looking for an opportunity to say something about this, so I'm going to take it now. Please forgive me. I want to offer this audience something to think about, probably something you're already thinking about. Terrorism, obviously, is a very important problem. Any physical threat against anyone's life is obviously an important problem. But terrorism is hardly the leading cause of mortality around the world. I was actually looking at an actuarial table in preparation for some public remarks like this several months ago, I was examining in an, in an insurance actuarial table the leading causes of mortality. One of the things I noted is that I have a higher likelihood of being killed by a household pet than I do from a terrorist attack. Now, I'm not trying to equate the two, um, but it is instructive, at least in this regard. 
when one considers the number of Americans, just to bring it back to our own country, the number of Americans that have been killed by terrorist attacks since 9-11. Obviously, we had this awful event that killed over 2,000 in a single day. But aside from that, the number of Americans that have been killed in terrorist attack has been, every death is a tragedy, but the number of Americans killed by terrorist attack has been comparatively small when one considers the number of Americans that have died in traffic accidents, opioid overdoses, and the like. Um, so it begs this question that I'll return to, is everything an emergency? I think the answer has to be no, but our tendency has been to treat everything as an emergency. And I think unintentionally, we sometimes invite what your question suggests. Sometimes we inadvertently enable activities, behaviors, uh, or, or other things that actually ensure that the problem never gets solved. Right up here in the center, Dan. Dan Raviv with I-24 News. Uh, a little bit on the political background that as Americans, you know, we live with the reality, and specifically since 9-11, there have been changes of administrations. So I'm wondering if in counterterrorism work, at least in offering plans and your insights and your strategies, it's affected by changes of administrations? Who's the president? What his advisors think? Uh, are you affected by that or you insulate yourself? Yeah, uh, I doubt it will surprise you to say, of course I'm affected by it. Uh, anyone in government service is affected by a change in administration. Uh, policy goals change to some degree. Uh, policy preferences change to some degree. Um, so, but I know that's not your answer you're looking for. Yes, I am affected. Uh, all my colleagues are affected by changes in administration. Um, what has remained constant, though, um, I'm going to oversimplify it just for the sake of brevity, is every administration, in my view, since 9-11, has, has adopted the goal of we're never going to have another 9-11. From that imperative has flowed much of what we have done for 17 years now. We're, whatever we do, we're going to prevent another 9-11. That, that has been a policy imperative that has not changed from administration to administration, in my view, and I think rightly so. That said, we've also been very consistent, as I tried to illuminate in my prepared remarks, in being primarily focused on those activities that lead to the death or the capture of a terrorist where our focus has generally not been is on preventing the creation of new terrorists. Um, and that has also been consistent from administration to administration. We publish strategies and plans about this, but if one examines the policy support, the manpower, and the money that we've committed to these things, it's a tiny fraction of what we've devoted to bringing a physical finish to a terrorist around the world. And that's the balance that I think needs to be redressed. But that is not unique to the current administration, the previous administration, or the administration that was in power on 9-11. We, we have not made a, not an identical, as I've already suggested, I don't think the non-kinetic community, if I can use that imperfect term, could absorb the resources uh, that 
have been showered on the kinetic side, but um, but the imbalance there's too much imbalance, and that has to be redressed in my view. Right behind you, MZ, we have the ambassador. My name is Mark Ginsburg. I'm with the Counter Extremism Project. Uh, you indicated that social media companies are the soft underbelly of the internet is become has become weaponized by uh, terrorist organizations. Social media companies in the United States claim that they're doing a more effective job helping to uh, reduce the proliferation of terrorist activity, et cetera, et cetera. My question to you is the following, and yet through the back door, we in our organization are witnessing how ISIS is using collateral platforms of Facebook as well as Google, et cetera, right. uh, to now hide in plain sight. Given the fact that these social media companies have indicated they're prepared and are doing more, if you could get them to do even more than what they're doing, how precisely and what precisely would you ask them to do? Thank you for the question. Um, first of all, I think we should give credit where credit is due. Um, I, I doubt there's anybody in this room who's not aware of um, the tens if not hundreds of thousands of extremist accounts, media, the, the probably untold volumes of extremist content that has been taken off of mostly the large media platforms, the ones you've already alluded to, like Facebook, um, Twitter, many others as well. Some are U.S. companies, some are not. Um, and I think we should give them credit. They, they, they have done uh, a great deal of work to take down that content, and that's all to the good. The world has benefited from that. So, so I want to start by giving credit where credit is due. It's also important to recognize that you don't have to be a company like Facebook to create a prolific social media platform. Some of the most famous social media platforms or most well-known, co commonly used social media platforms, if you actually look at who's running it, it's pretty close to a mom-and-pop cottage industry because it doesn't take a lot of people. Um, but our attention has been primarily been on the big tech companies, not these smaller organizations. But perhaps more importantly, I think there's an unanswered question about taking down content that we have to address before we go back to anybody in the tech sector and say, you have to do more. What's the connection? What's the correlation between taking down content and reducing the scale of terrorism around the world? I personally am uncertain about that. I would like to believe there's a direct causal correlation. The more we take down the content, the less terrorism we're going to have around the world. I am not yet convinced that's true. I, at least I have yet to see any empirical evidence that it is true. I'm not suggesting we should not take down that content. People get killed with that content. But I'm not convinced yet that taking down more content, at more content makes the kind of strategic difference that I think some people assume it does. I am unconvinced of this. It may be true. I would like to it be true, but I'm not yet, I'm yet not yet ready to embrace the idea that it is true. So 
my aunt, my rather, this probably sounds like I'm dodging your question, but my, my caution to the people that do, you know, our government engage in the tech sector is before you ask them to do more, why don't we examine, should we not examine how much of a difference does this actually make? Because, first of all, we shouldn't do things that don't actually reduce the scale of terrorism we have, we have to deal with. But just as importantly, and I doubt this will surprise you, taking down content, extremist content, um, is a comparatively easy task for these tech companies to do. Some of the things we'd like to ask them to do that we don't would affect their profit margins, their stakeholder interests. You know, their livelihood depends on fostering interpersonal connections on the internet. If we're, if we're not careful, we're going to make, we're going to demand things of them they are simply unable or unwilling to do. We may be approaching that boundary already. So I think there's a, there's a step we have to take. How much of a difference does this actually make? Okay. On the left here, a gentleman with his hand up. Right there you go. My name's Larry Mandel, and I am a retired Foreign Service State Department. I had the pleasure of serving in Ankara, Turkey, when General Nagata was coming through pretty often to work with the Turks. So my question is, uh, General, looking back on it, uh, do you think that our joint work with the Turks was largely successful? And are there some lessons learned that if you had to do it again, you'd employ? First of all, it's great to see you. Um, and uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to you and all your colleagues uh, in the country team in Ankara for putting up with me for all those repetitive visits. Of course, looking back is always a tempting but dangerous exercise, but I'll try. As I look back on it, my, my personal view is there really was no alternative to doing what I would argue people like you, people like me, the ambassador, were all trying to do, and that is take the time necessary to encourage and persuade our Turkish colleagues to take this journey with us. Now, there are, there are people in this government who completely disagree with me, as you know, and, and I don't criticize them. You know, they, I, I can understand why people uh, in our government and across the coalition felt, you know what, regardless of what our Turkish brothers may think, we have to do what we have to do. That, that was, as you know very well, that was not the tack I was taking. But I had the freedom at the time to take the approach that I was taking. And as I look back on it, of course, it's easy for me to convince myself that what I do works, but I do believe it was working. The question I could not answer is, could the United States, could the coalition afford the time that it would take to bring our Turkish colleagues along the way with us? I still don't know the answer to that. If I had to do it all over again, would I do it differently? No. In the back. Yep. Thank you, General Rahim Rashidi from Kurdistan TV. You know, after October 16, when Shia militia attacked Kirkuk, no news confirming day after day, ISIS became a stronger and active around the Kirkuk. How important is it Peshmerga will return back to Kirkuk? And how do you describe security situation over there? And what is your opinion of the Kurdish leadership in fight against ISIS? Thank you. 
Well, thank you for your question. I, uh, I was actually recently in uh, northern Iraq visiting some of my Kurdish colleagues that I remember from when I was a younger officer deployed to Iraq, um, and it was a great, it was a great reunion. Um, first of all, I want, I want to pay tribute to the, uh, particularly the, the, the soldiers and the officers in the Kurdish formations that fought ISIS in those early days. Uh, you were holding the line when many other forces were either unable or unwilling to hold the line. And so we should give credit where credit is due. Kurdish bravery, Kurdish skill was a very important, was a very important measure and a very important capability that prevented a very dangerous situation in Iraq and it prevented it from becoming catastrophic. So I want to pay tribute to that. And I told my Kurdish colleagues when I was in uh, in in, uh, in northern Iraq this uh, a few weeks ago. Now that said, you asked specifically about Kirkuk. I think my personal view is that Kirkuk is, a, uh, is going to be both a challenge and a test case for the new Iraqi government once it is fully formed. Uh, obviously, the election has only recently happened. I don't, I don't think uh, we yet have a final form for the new government. But once it is in place, uh, Kirkuk will be an early test case for the new government. A as you know very well, both the Kurds in the north as well as the central government in Baghdad both have interests in Kirkuk. I think the best people on both sides are trying to find a path towards some kind of joint administration for Kirkuk. I have heard people on both sides caution uh, Americans and other coalition members that there is significant peril for the entire country if that joint administration agreement is not reached, and I agree with them. But n none of this is possible until the new government in Baghdad has been fully formed. So th this is a story that has yet to be written. But some reasonable, mutually acceptable joint administration of Kirkuk will send, a, if it's created, will send a very important signal across both the country and the region that if we are to prevent a return of the Islamic State or something like it, there has to be a different political outcome in this part of the world than we've had previously. Right up front here, please. Uh, Michael Kurtzig, retired from the Department of Agriculture. I've just returned from Israel, spent three weeks on my brother's farm within spitting distance of Gaza. And a few rockets came over, not close to us, luckily, fires over there. Sitting in that chair about two, about six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, was a Victor Lieberman, who said to us, Iran poured $250 million into Gaza a year ago, two years ago. Obviously, Iran is the principal supporter of terrorism. I think probably global terrorism. Are we doing enough to counter that globally, whether in Africa, whether in South America, or in the Middle East? Do we have to do more? I mean, we see what's going on with Hezbollah and so on. Could you comment on that? Thank you very much. I, I can try. I, I want to start by saying that uh, at the risk of sounding like I'm trying to dodge your question, the, 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 the question about are we doing enough or is the world doing enough, because I Iran is recognized by many countries around the world as a state sponsor of terrorism. 
The question of are we doing enough begs a different question. What are our goals? Very obviously, we would like Iran to stop being a state sponsor of terrorism. We would like terrorism that is connected either directly or indirectly with Iran to cease. Are we, you know, but I, I, just based on your question, are we measurably closer to that today than we were a few years ago? Probably not. That said, um, the, uh, our administration has made no secret of its intent and its determination to deal with what we are, I'll use a U.S. government term here, to deal with Iranian malign behavior, including its state sponsorship of terrorist or terrorist-like activities. So that's our policy intent, that's our policy goal, is to be much more effective in contesting Iran's relationship with terrorist activities. That strategic dialogue within our government is ongoing. Uh, I am part of this conversation, as you would expect, because I work on counterterrorism strategy, but um, it is unfinished work, sir. Some of it, some of it is underway now. You've, you've, I'm sure you're aware of some of the sanctions. Uh, the, obviously, the with, withdrawal from the Joint Plan of Action is a component of this. But there, there is there, there is much more yet to be decided, and based on those decisions, there is still much more yet to come that we have not yet decided. Um, so this, we are at the very beginning of this administration's journey to contest Iran's use of terrorism or terrorist entities around the world. So I guess, rather axiomatically, it can't possibly be enough yet because we've only just begun. Let me follow up on that for one second, because the Secretary of State has given us this 12-point plan, which mm -hmm. has been uh, described by some in government as the building block elements of a strategy. The right. Secretary is in the region right now mm -hmm. uh, saying things like Qasem Soleimani is uh, engaging in these malign activities right. and we have to raise the costs. So how does someone like yourself try to translate these big statements, we will destroy Hezbollah, we will defeat the Quds Force right. into actual counterterrorism strategy. Right. Well, I, 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 I want to avoid trying to turn this into a seminar about strategy development, so I'll be, I'll be relatively brief about this. At a minimum, we try to look at this through two lenses. First of all, we try to look at it through the red lens or the enemy lens. What are they trying to do and how are they trying to do it? And unfortunately, Iran has many instruments at its disposal when it comes to terrorist or terrorist-like activities. They've got their own state organs. They have proxies and surrogates around the world and around the region that are at their disposal that they can use to conduct uh, malign activities of many different types. And, and Iran is a global actor, whether we like it or not. They have, they have, they have people that will do their bidding uh, in the Western Hemisphere, not just in the Middle East. They have people that will do their bidding in Europe and in Asia. So we have to understand what we're grappling with. That, that is an ongoing process, just understanding what are we actually tangling with, how much are we actually tangle, tangling with when we deal with Iranian, what we style, misbehavior or malign behavior. And then finally, on that score, we have to recognize that they have the ability to retaliate. You know, the, if we harm them, they have the ability to harm us or our allies. So we have to take that into account. Doesn't mean we should shrink from action, 
we have to be ready for possible reaction. That is also ongoing work. Finally, what can we do? What are we willing to do in order to impose costs, send strong signals, or curtail their, their activities? Um, and and I'll, I'm going to use one example here so I don't go on endlessly about this. Iran is a very capable potential adversary. We will need exquisite intelligence to be effective in contesting Iranian use of terrorism. That has not been where our, the, our intelligence community's focus has been, by and large, for the last 17 years. And increasingly, there are other demands, North Korea, other nation states that we are worried about beyond Iran. So one of the things that we have to take stock of is how much of our intelligence community capabilities can we afford to devote against a very complex and very formidable potential adversary when it comes to Iran when it's in tension with unrelenting demand for those very same exquisite intelligence capabilities for other problems. You know, our, our, our limiting factor is not our ability to impose costs on Iran. Our limiting factor is our ability to know where, when, how, and what the likely outcomes would be. And those are all intelligence questions. But the IC is meeting itself coming and going, as you, I'm sure you know very well, with all the multiple terrorism and nation-state challenge demands that are pouring onto the DNI every single day. Mike Rollins up front here. Thank you, General, for your remarks and for your years of commitment, not just to CVE, but to the whole mission entirely. It's greatly appreciated by those of us that have been fighting the fight. I retired after 31 years in the FBI and spent a lot of time in this town, and I could not agree more. First, a comment, then a question. I could not agree more with your statement about newer decisions and risk analysis and moving away from such a high level, high level of risk aversion that nothing gets done. With that said, one of the great fears that we had that fortunately has not evolved as we thought it might was the danger posed to our country domestically by returning foreign fighters. Without getting specific, I'd like to hear you speak to your level of confidence that we know who they are, we know where they are, and when they return, our plan is in place and, and will be effective to the degree that it can be. Thank you. Um, the, uh, I spend a fair chunk of time worrying about the foreign fighter problem, um, not just for the United States, but for many of our partners and allies around the world. Matter of fact, I'm going to a conference soon to discuss this, but you, you use the term confidence. Um, we know a lot. It's just we don't know enough. I use the term in my prepared remarks that we believe our estimates, our best estimates are that something in excess of 40,000 foreign terrorist fighters have joined ISIS uh, since 2014. It's an astonishing number. The problem is it's a low-confidence number. There's a, there's a lot of latency in our reporting. We sometimes don't know that a foreign fighter joined a terrorist group or may have even traveled back home until months or sometimes even years after the travel has happened. 
Now, that's not because we're dumb. That's not because we're incompetent. It's just it's it's really a function of what I said a moment ago, which is there's so much tension on our intelligence community, so many multiple competing demands, our ability to focus collection and analysis on just the foreign fighter problem is limited, very limited. So it's, it automatically calls into question our confidence in making such assessments. But, you know, our analysts are trained to be conservative in their estimates, so the 40,000 number's certainly low. Now, many, the good news is many of them have been killed. A very large number of them have died during the military campaign of the last four years. That's all to the good, but thousands of them remain. I'm going to change your question slightly. What's our confidence we can track them from places like Iraq or Syria to their next destination, which might or may not be their place of origin? It's unfortunately, the same answer. Our ability to focus on that question with limited intelligence resources is limited. Uh, so we are often surprised by the emergence of a foreign fighters that we once knew was in location X, but now has shown up in location Y. And I want to point something out. We're, we're um, stopping foreign fighter or terrorist travel is a necessary component um, it's it's part of I would argue are the things we should do non kinetically, just making it much harder for terrorists to get on an airplane and travel internationally. But I want to point something out to everybody: this is no small task when you consider the fact that the world is very busy liberalizing international travel. International travel has never been faster, never been more convenient, never been more available, and never been cheaper than it is right now. So while we've been busy liberalizing international travel, we have to undertake this challenge of identifying a tiny fraction of that traveling population and preventing them from traveling whatsoever. That is no small feat because it's, it's really cutting against the grain of, the, of global trends where we're liberalizing international travel. Uh, so it's necessary. We have to succeed at this. But this is, this is another arena that I don't think gets as much attention as it should. In the back, Dan Green. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dan Green. I'm a fellow here at the Washington Institute, also a reservist, and then worked at the State Department for a while. I was wondering uh, what were some of the other lessons you've sort of picked up over your time in the military and various tours when it comes to harnessing local populations to defeat uh, yeah. terrorist groups, whether it be the Village Stability Operations Program in Afghanistan, even the Ambar Awakening and our role in facilitating that uprising. Right. You know, I think there are a lot of lessons from those that are often contrary to how our bureaucracies are designed yeah. and, and often aren't institutionalized and often quite readily abandoned. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I'm going to give you a very personal answer here. This is, this is deeply colored, perhaps badly biased by my personal experiences, but here's my answer. If someone wants to be effective in harnessing, collaborating with, having a functional and effective relationship with a, a foreign actor of any kind, an international actor of any kind. I don't care whether it's a local tribal militia or it's a foreign government's military. The key to success is personal relationships. Our logic 
and our language about ends, ways, and means and aligning interests are important. I'm not trying to discount that. But in the absence of taking the time and making the investments necessary to forge personal relationships with these actors, there's only so far you can go. Um, you know, I mean, in, after the last 17 years, you know, there's a small cottage industry of books that have been published about what I just said. You know, they... Dan you know, wrote two of them. Yeah. The, you know, it, it, whether, it, you know, the title's like drinking like three cups of tea and what have you. But the, 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 the common denominator among those that I've had a chance to read is that this is fundamentally dependent on getting to the point, and, and this happens in our own society, so it shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us. It happens in American culture as much as it happens anywhere else in the world. You get to the point in developing your relationship with someone. I have my own memories of this. That's why I'm making this such a personal answer, where some local leader is looking at me, a, a much younger version of me with darker hair, saying things like, well, you know, Colonel Nagata, what you've asked for here is very difficult. We, we would not do this normally. But over the months, you've done some things for us. We trust you. So because you are asking me, we are willing to do this. If somebody else were asking me, the answer would just be no. Now, maybe that's just for show. Maybe they're, maybe they're lying to me. But this has been such a frequent experience for me that I've come to rather passionately believe that yes, you have to have your logic, you have to have your nation-state interests in mind, you have to be mindful of the talking points you were given, but in the absence of a personal relationship, particularly when lives are on the line, particularly when the stakes are very, very high, you don't have a personal relationship with the people you're trying to work with, you're probably never going to get there. I read that somewhere in your book, Dan. Uh, Dave Pollack, raise your hand right here. Thanks very much, General. Uh, I want to ask you um, about something that may be a sort of a happier uh, prospect here, which is on the happiness is in short supply yes. in the so, counterterrorism so world. So I, I welcome thought, the question. I thought you'd appreciate this, <laughs> but I'm not sure if you agree. But I, it seems to me that in the long term, mm -hmm. on the ideological front, that there is a promising potential today that did not exist until very recently, which is a change in the policy of countries like Saudi Arabia in particular, but others as mm -hmm. well, in the way that they institutionally propagate mm -hmm. Islam and right. uh, trying to move in a more tolerant and less violent mm -hmm. and uh, generally a more enlightened or moderate direction. Right. And we, we've seen that here at the Washington Institute, where right. I am, where we've hosted senior clerics from mm -hmm. some of these countries and heard a very different message in the right. last year or two from what we used to hear. Uh, I wonder if you have any way of assessing whether this has made a difference so far, whether you see that in the longer term it could yield right. some significant benefits for our overall international counterterrorism effort, and if there's anything else that strikes you about this phenomenon. Thank you. Uh, I, I'm going to start by 
telling you something that you probably have already heard. It's a fairly common story in this town. I can't remember the exact setting, but it was a it was a high-ranking leader from China who had come to visit one of our war colleges, uh, I think a war college, and um, he was asked the question by somebody in the audience what, what he thought the significance of the American Revolution was. His famous answer was, it's too early to tell. <laughs> I'm not trying to be trying to be trite about this. It just that's it immediately popped into my head as I was listening to you. Untying this, at the risk of using a bad analogy, the Gordian knot of the variety of causes, grievances, and ideologies that foment terrorism at the scale we now see it around the world is going to take generations. I, I, this is going to, again, this is going to sound like a blibblit of excursion. I actually keep on my rather messy desk a copy of George Kennan's Long Telegram just to remind myself it's not impossible to take a generational approach to a problem, the containment of communism. It's just rare. I think the world, not just the United States, I think the world is going to have to adopt a generations-long approach to untying this Gordian knot of grievances, causes, and ideologies. Some of what we've heard from our Arab friends is promising, but it is way too early to draw to any conclusions, in my humble opinion. I applaud what they seem to be trying to do. I welcome all of it. But if past experience is any indicator, some of this will fail. Will they keep going when it fails? I ask us that question. When we fail at something, will we keep going or will we quit? Because it's too painful, it's too hard, it's too complicated, or it will take too long. If we're serious, if the world is serious, we will do what George Kennan recommended in his long telegram. We will stay at this for as long as it takes. We have demonstrating a willingness to kill and capture terrorists for 17 consecutive years. It will take even longer to untie the grievances, the causes, the ideologies. Are we willing to do it? I don't know yet. I hope so. Or we're never going to be rid of this problem. All right, so we've got about 15 minutes left, which brings us to the lightning round. Because okay. I promised to get you on time, but I also promised to get everybody's questions, and I've got several here. That's Matt's way of saying I'm blathering yeah. on too long. Hi, Eric Schmidt, General, uh, from the New York Times. I just want to look at this point as almost an inflection point, kind of following up on your last response. Uh, as we see the demise of the Islamic State's uh, success on the battlefield, at least, do you see the trajectory moving forward, a consolidation of these various Islamic extremist groups? I mean, or do you see, for instance, a continuing competition between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State? Or is it, is it yet another area? Is it more decentralized? I mean, we're seeing groups pop up like these Islamic extremist groups in the DRC in Mozambique that call themselves Shabaab, for instance, but have no relation to Shabaab in Somalia. What, what direction do you see the, the Thank you, Eric. I, it's good to see you. I, I think we will see everything you just said. We are seeing everything you've just said. You've used some current contempor contemporary examples already. But I'm going to... I'm going to give you a slightly different answer uh, from what your question um, would otherwise lead me to. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question by saying here's what I'm worried about the most when it comes to the future of terrorism. It's the convergence of two things I talked about in my prepared remarks. The convergence of, and, and unfortunately, ISIS has been a pioneer in both of these arenas, and they've been, therefore they've been a model and an example for aspiring extremists around the world. First of all is the power of online radicalization and mobilization of violence. We have never seen anything like this. As I indicated in my prepared remarks, no longer does someone trying to recruit a terrorist ever have to physically meet an aspiring terrorist. You don't even have to directly communicate with them. Just get the right video in the right forum, and you'll inspire that person to violence without any instruction whatsoever. No training, no preparation, no resourcing, no direction. A complete decentralization of the recruitment process. And it has been very effective, astonishingly effective. We wouldn't be having the conversation we're having, as was suggested by one of the earlier conversations, with, with the tech sector around the world about, oh, my God, get all this content off the Internet if it weren't incredibly effective. We wouldn't be spending all this time on it. But it's converging with something else that I also talked about in my prepared remarks. The ubiquitous availability of increasingly powerful technology. Unmanned aerial systems are the example I used in my prepared remarks, but it's not the only example. I'm sure some of you in this room have seen, if you have a 3D printer, you can make a firearm in your basement. And that's not just true inside the United States, it's true around the world. You can download the construction instructions for a chemical weapon on the Internet. So what happens when these two things converge as they are converging now? Recruitment of a new terrorist no longer requires centralized control, centralized planning, centralized resourcing, or centralized direction. Radicalizing them and then mobilizing them to violence doesn't require any central authority or centralized connection. An increasingly powerful lethal capability is available to anyone that has a credit card and the ability to follow instructions on the Internet. That is the future of terrorism. I, I am less concerned about the existence of large formal structures like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. I'm very concerned about them. I don't want to make light of that. But I'm more concerned about where this is all headed, where increasingly this is going to be such a diffuse, decentralized, but very lethal enterprise that much of our current capabilities are not tailored for. Well, on that note, uh, right here, please, gentlemen with the blue shirt. DHS, thank you for coming, sir. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to some of the U.S. counterterrorism goals in West Africa. Uh, I think highlighted last summer with the deaths of the Special Force soldiers yes. in Niger. Um, there's been an uptick in political violence in Nigeria and uh, and surrounding countries, and there's um, much displacement and um, insurgency, a widespread insurgency and terrorism throughout the region. Thank you. Um, well, terrorism, uh, rather obviously, you're obviously well versed in this in this arena. 
Terrorism in that part of the world, and it's actually true everywhere, ter terrorism is a symptom of a problem. The violence that too many African societies and too many Africans are suffering from, whether it's in the Lake Chad Basin area, it's in Nigeria, it's in Somalia, on the other side of the continent, it, it is all a result of political, societal, cultural underpinnings that... Um, that, that all African nations are struggling to address, and in, in too many cases, not successfully. But there's no prospect of the United States being willing to mount the kind of large-scale counterterrorism efforts that we've been willing to mount so far in places like Afghanistan or Iraq, right? That's not, that's not on the table. Nobody's proposing it. And even if you were to propose it, I think it would get shot down pretty quickly. Um, we've got we've got other problems, including the the rise of peer state competition that we have to deal with. So we're going to have to find other solutions. We and our African allies, partners, and colleagues, we're going to have to find other solutions. Some terrorists will have to be captured. Some terrorists will have to be killed. I'm not trying to dismiss that, but I would argue that the future of counterterrorism in Africa could be a testbed for how seriously is not just the United States, but how seriously is the international community willing to invest in things that don't involve killing or capturing terrorists? I don't know the answer to that yet. All right, with your permission, we're going to take two questions in a row and then answer them together. You get your, I know so, I'm, I know I'm, I'm yeah, fighting so the moderator here. To, to Katie, and then Katie, you can pass right behind you to the woman in the blue blouse who had a question too. Great, thank you. Katie Zarin from the American Enterprise Institute. Um, our counterterrorism efforts, as you describe them today, have been incredibly enemy-centric. Enemy Even yes. countering violent extremism, terrorism prevention is focused on preventing an enemy from recruiting individuals. And we've also somehow drawn lines between Salafi jihadi insurgencies, so the, the groups that hold the same ideology as al-Qaeda and ISIS, and the terrorist groups themselves. Mm -hmm. um, trying to distinguish them from what I see as a broader movement. Um, moving forward, as we're looking at how these groups and the movement itself is operating on the ground, they're not focused on the United States or the West in the same way that we're focused on them. They're focused on the people. And my question is, if, if the enemy is focused on the people and the United States is focused on the enemy, doesn't that create a strategic weakness in our counterterrorism strategy? And how do we start to fix that? Great question. Before you answer, okay. pass right behind you, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Linda from USIP. Um, I have two quick questions. One is, what, um, based on your observation, are the best best practices to counter violent extremism in the non-kinetic way? Mm -hmm. And the second one is, um, given the status of um, terrorism threat, how it's perceived in the U.S. government, um, that is like less um, important or emergent than the threat from peer state um, competition from, you, uh, from China or Russia. Um, how do you raise awareness or how do you convince the government that it's important to raise more funding or focus more on non-kinetic um, counter-violent yeah. extremism? Thank you. All right, um, I'll try to take these in proper order here. So uh, your question was founded on the notion that the enemy's focused on the population. We're focused on them. That's a problem. I'm, I'm not arguing we should not be focused on them. 
but you, what you're reminding me uh, is something that um, I've uh, that I worry about. And I'm going to I'm going to use a specific example here as a way of answering your question. There's a specific mission area called counter messaging, right? Some people call it fighting the narrative, contesting the ideology. Uh, the U.S. Gov- in U.S. government parlance, it's counter messaging. I-, I dislike the term. We're still using it, so nobody cares whether or not I like it. But I dislike the term because it seems to imply that it is sufficient to criticize the enemy's message. Now, I believe it is necessary to criticize the enemy's message. Some of their message is hollow, hypocritical, specious. So, yeah, we should criticize their narrative. We should criticize the deal that they are offering to those they are either trying to persuade their join to join their ranks or simply an effort to cow them into submitting to whatever it is they want to do. It's necessary to do that. It's just insufficient to do that. They're offering the population they're talking to a deal. It begs a question that we often falter in answering. What's our deal? What are we offering the same people that is more attractive, more real, more persuasive than what the enemy is offering? That is where we often falter. One of the reasons we falter is because it's very hard to get international consensus on what the alternative ought to be. What I might think the better deal would be and what some other person like me in some other government around the world could be very, very different. So getting international consensus or even just regional consensus on what a more attractive, more persuasive, better offer would be has been incredibly difficult. And unfortunately, it's had the unintended consequence of discouraging us from trying. In terms of your question about best practices, I, I don't have, this, this is a terrible answer. <laughs> but it, it reminds me of what my wife often tells me when I emerge from our walk-in closet, having gotten ready for whatever social engagement we're going to, and my wife looks at me up and down and she says, will you just try? (laughs) We have to try. Too often we don't try. Um, The investments that need to be made, I'll I'll use CV as an example. I was in a recent, uh, not all that recent, about a year ago I was in in a conversation with a pretty important person in our government about preventing terrorism or CVE. And I said, hey, I, with all due respect, sir, I think we need to invest more in this. His, his immediate retort to me was, you're going to have to prove to me it works first. My response to that was, sir, with all due respect, we haven't tried hard enough to know what works. I can't tell you what works. We don't know yet unless we're willing to try hard enough that we go through what, as I mentioned, Thomas Edison once went through. We're not willing to fail. We're never going to find the road to success. That's been our problem. We're so afraid of failure, we're not willing to try. That's the best practice we could adopt, is try hard enough to succeed and endure the setbacks along the way. All right, we're going to take two more. Kate in the back, and then right in front of you also in a, uh, a white jacket. We'll take these two questions together, please. Kate Bauer from the Washington Institute, and um, thank you, General Nagata, for for, uh, uh, being so generous with your time and this wide range of questions. I had a question that you partially addressed, um, but I'll I'll follow up back to it. 
You discussed in your prepared remarks um, the threat from uh, terrorists getting a hold of unmanned aerial systems. And I was just wondering, given, you know, this commercial available te technology, um, what can be done to disrupt the ability of terrorist organizations to get a hold of them and to deploy them? Yep. Or is this more a question of looking at the battlefield response? Is this just part of the, the threat picture that we have to take into account from a battlefield perspective? Yep. Or, or, or can we do both? Just pass, the question. Mic, pass the mic forward, please. My name is Meredith Pontius. I'm a recent graduate of American University's Terrorism Homeland Security Policy Program. Um, fundamentally, organizations, service organizations have changed from hierarchical to more network structures. For junior, uh, junior analysts and open source researchers such as myself, where is our best efforts focused on understanding how these networks are functioning? I'm sorry. I, I, could you restate your course, say it one more time? I don't think I captured all of it. Yeah, sure. So fundamentally, terrorist organizations have changed from more hierarchical right. structures to networked. Okay. Sometimes within the organization itself, sometimes cross-regionally, sometimes gotcha. with other organizations. Where is our efforts best focused as junior analysts in the OSINT perspective uh, on okay. where and how to understand those networks? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, Beyond just mining the Washington yep. Institute's website, of course. Um, all right, again, I'll try to take these in order, but let me make a quick note to myself here. Um, all right, on unmanned aerial systems, first of all, I'm going to stipulate something that I actually would like to be wrong about. The toothpaste is out of the tube. We're not going to jam the toothpaste back in the tube. The availability, the ubiquitous availability of increasingly powerful unmanned aerial systems is, we're, we, we, there, we, there's no way to, to roll that back in to the spool. It's out there in the wild. For those of you who don't know, there's an international sport called racing drones. You know, I, 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 I was remiss. I was actually intending to check. Uh, periodically, I do an internet search for what's the fastest racing drone I could find. By the way, for those of you who don't know, there are propeller-driven and jet engine uh, racing drones now. Uh, when I, last time I checked, it's, I'm sure it's faster now. Last time I checked was about four months ago. Was I, I, I went searching for what's the what's the fastest propeller or jet engine driven drone I could buy with a credit card and have in three days. Four months ago, propeller driven about 200 miles an hour, jet engine in excess of 400 miles an hour. You don't actually have to weaponize that. It already is a weapon. Now, the good news is the lion's share of people around the world are using them for recreational, peaceful, or commercial purposes. That's all to the good, and I'm not suggesting we stop any of that. But it's like every other technology since the dawn of mankind. If a bad actor wants to use it for a bad purpose, they can and they will, and it's happening now. ISIS is showing the way. But the thing that I worry about most is that increasingly these platforms are exceeding the neurologic capability of the human brain to pilot. They, have, they, are, they are already achieving performance characteristics that exceed what a human being can match on his joystick. So increasingly, people are flying these systems with using a form of artificial intelligence you can put on a smartphone. So we're dealing with robots, flying robots, it begs this question, are we willing as a government to innovate faster 
then the commercial industry is innovating. And if we can't regulate. Or that. Uh, there was an editorial uh, that came out from uh, the Homeland Security Secretary recently asking Congress to take a look at this. But, you know, this is, this is not static. This is moving with no regard to what the United States government wants. And to uh, the OSINT question? On the OSINT question, huh, asking me for advice is always dangerous. Increasingly, I think understanding terrorism is, there, there is a lot any analyst can and will learn from what we have in our classified holdings. Those will always be important. But increasingly, understanding terrorism is going to require us to do, become much more effective in learning about terrorism outside of what is available in the classified realm. But we're not particularly good at that. Most analysts don't get paid or promoted for examining what is out there in the wild. They get paid and promoted for examining what's in our classified holdings. The, the, I think the future is going to require us to expand our aperture in ways that make us very uncomfortable. It's going to require us to examine publicly available information that has no quality control. There's a lot of quality control on classified holdings. But more and more of what's happening in terrorism isn't to be found there. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.